0: Mm. Mm-hmm. you. and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller.
1: I'm Matt Henry, and we're going to deal with sacraments and church history uh, as we continue our march through systematic Theology on Ecclesiology. So we're examining the idea and use of sacraments or, as we prefer to call them, ordinances. The reality, though, is that uh, however tr- we may try, the the bulk of the larger church will use the term sacrament, uh, and there is a reason for it. Historically, the church started using this word a couple hundred years ago, into, or a couple hundred years actually into its existence, in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. And since the Roman Catholic Church was that primary force after the 3rd century, it stuck. Uh, last time we talked about the actual use of sacrament versus ordinance. Uh, But today we'll dive briefly into a history of the church to see how this whole thing developed. Uh, And it is by necessity a very brief sketch. So any church history nerds out there, you're going to be annoyed with us. Deal with it. Um, I mean, there's no way we're going to do it in depth. High level here. (laughs) Um, And even this. But we're going to try hard to make it interesting.
0: So uh, let's try and define sacrament first of all. Um, The early part of the history of of the church, there was little discussion or development of a sacramental theology. You just said, what, second or third century? Yeah. Um, And the reason for that is a very good reason. There were just bigger fish to fry. You know, they're like figuring out the Trinity. And
1: And how to stay alive.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that too. Um, And so this is, you know, this is something we forget often when looking at theological development of history. Um, theology does not exist in a vacuum and it's very much affected by issues of the day. Um, people want to know what God has to say about certain situations that arise and people are going to use the Bible to manipulate people into thinking that something that is happening is good and right, or at least allowable. Um, you know, we, we see this in the crusades, for example, where indulgences were used to encourage the masses. Uh, especially criminals, to sign up and go and fight for the Pope. Uh, if you look at any decent systematic theology, you're going to find it addressing issues that were pressing for that time. People wonder why so many systematic theologies are always coming out. There's a reason for that.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I had that actual question. It's like, how many systematic theologies do you need? And I'm like, well, that's <laughs> funny you should say because they are speaking to theology in the time frame that they're living.
0: Exactly. So, so Hodge's theology, for example, deals heavily with the whole concept of evolution. Uh, Gr- Grudem, Wayne Grudem, he's dealing with signs and wonders. Uh, that was the big issue in his day. Uh, Aquinas deals with, for example, the Eucharist. Today we see gender issues and homosexuality on the forefront, um, dealing a lot with just anthropology. Um, the, the, the next set of theology you're gonna see, uh, if it's a good one, I would say, is definitely going to deal with the issues of critical race theory and social justice Absolutely, issues yeah. stuff like that. So for good or for bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just how does the Bible speak to these issues happening? So, so when we see that there's a little um there's a little early on regarding the Lord's Supper and baptism, it should not surprise you. Uh, they were dealing with other things. As you said, like staying alive. Um,
1: but even sorry, I always have the <laughs> B so, uh, G S. Staying alive, staying alive, staying alive. Ah, ah, ah. And then, what's the actor? Oh, he. This is way before your time. He was the guy dancing in the show. Never mind. Go on. <laughs>
0: uh, all right. Um, <clears throat> you know, even in the New Testament, uh, this is interesting. You 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 even see theology develop there. Uh, In Acts 15, for example, the early church is needing to address the relationship of Mosaic law uh, with Gentile Christians. Uh, And so you have your first council, if you will, there in Acts chapter 15. Um, Paul, throughout his writings, addresses the Jew-Gentile relationship, uh, primarily in Romans, for example. John deals with something called incipient Gnosticism in 1 John. And these are all those early examples of theological development of the church. Um, However, in saying all that, we can see how various people developed language regarding the Lord's Supper and baptism that laid down a pattern that was then picked up by later theologians. And
1: and that's important because somebody significant writes something, and then another person builds off of that, and they usually borrow their their, uh, language, their terms. And so it slowly gets built into, go ahead.
0: Yeah, well it's funny, if you do read uh, various theologies from different times, like I'm going through um, Burkhoff's Systematic Theology with some guys right now. And it's really interesting that um, a lot of the modern theologies will sometimes just sound like word for word. Uh, things that he has said writing 100 years ago.
1: And you're like, I know who you read. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and then he was picking up on language from from previous, you know. So today you even see this. So key leaders will use terms like gospel issue, for example, and that's become the new buzzword. Uh, We would argue that this is uh, what happened, in fact, to the word and the whole idea of Sabbath. Uh, There is not a shred of biblical data giving credence to the Sunday becoming the new Sabbath, but... It's, it's been something that's been repeated for so long that, therefore, it must be true. Um, and that is h- how terms and ideas creep into the church at large.
1: By the way, for the uh, younger listeners, I remember the name. It's John Travolta.
0: I was actually going to uh, say him, but yep. then I didn't want to say I bought like a
1: him. leisure suit. Really? Because he wore one. Huh. I'm not proud of that anymore. <laughs> I look pretty darn cool.
0: You should
1: uh, you should uh, I bring mean, that I, out on
0: Sunday. That's I have pictures. You
1: There's pictures of me in it. Um, anyhow, so we're what we're going to do is give you some key figures. Some of these people you'll recognize. Some you'll like. Who are they? Uh, but these are key figures in that development of sacraments in the his, in history. Okay, so the first one that we all know and love um, is Augustine or um, Augustine. Back in three fifty four to four thirty, he argued that a sacrament is a sign of a sacred thing. Um, And and that's important because that terminology then became codified. Um, A sign, he says, must bear some relation to the thing that is signified. The problem, though, is that they were not defined by him, and so this set up an opportunity by later theologians to expound on that very meaning. So the next guy that wanders in and we're jumping a huge amount of time is a guy named Hugh of Saint Victor back in he died in 1142. So get your head around that. Uh, Augustine said this in his lifetime in the third and four, uh, second and third centuries. Now we're in the 10th century and or is it 12th century, 12th, 12th century and he is now going to pick this up. So during the Middle Ages, there was more discussion on what constituted a sacrament. But you need to let that time frame uh, from the New Testament to this point in 1142 at his death, just sink, let that sink in for a moment. A thousand years have gone by since Christ's ascension. But during that time, sacrament became fully embedded into the language of the church. And only now, somebody decides to explore really what that means. And so a a theologian of Flemish or German origin, Hugh, uh, wrote this important work called On the Sacraments of the Christian Faith. And in this, he sought a precise definition of the term sacrament. So he argued that what was needed was a physical or material element set before the external senses, represented by likeness, signifying by its institution, and containing by sanctification some invisible sp- and spiritual grace. Um, thus, and that's a, a quote, uh, thus, there are four essential elements for understanding the nature of a sacrament. The first is that there must be a physical or material element involved. So water for baptism, wine, and bread for Eucharist, etc. Second, there must be some similarity or kind of likeness to the thing signified. So here, wine is like blood and bread is like flesh. Uh, third, uh, Third, there must be good reason to believe that the sign in question has been authorized to represent the spiritual object at hand. And and example is simple. Um, Jesus himself authorized the use of wine and bread to represent his blood and body. Um, What's your thoughts if you are in a place where you have no access to either? Can you still keep the Lord's Supper? I'm just curious.
0: Well, sure, but I do think it diminishes a lot. Um, And I'm even picky about wine, over grape juice. Yeah. I know it can be the fruit of the vine. I understand that. But um, to me, it's, you're also in uh, conjunction with the historic church when you use wine.
1: Right. And that's the challenge with this whole thing is that there is a value of tradition. And someday we'll have to explore that. Um, of what the tradition of the church. And the reason I ask you is I remember a guy, his name was Charles Swindoll. You've heard of him? Oh, yeah. Um, Back in the 70s during the Jesus uh, movement in Southern California, they had uh, the Lord's Supper and they had some, um, they used a banana for bread and they used some soda for the the drink, because that's all they had. It was on the beach with a bunch of newly, new converts. I'm like, I don't know. know." Um, Anyhow, the fourth thing he says is it must have an efficacy in that it can confer, this is huge. It can confer benefits on those who partake of the sacrament.
0: Yeah. Now this again is a good example of how theology tends to override biblical data. Often Uh, there is, there's utterly no biblical text uh, or texts that would teach these four elements that you just gave. Uh, but what happens is that it becomes codified and then it, it is now the standard. And so people stop going to the biblical text and they look at the confessions, for example, or theology to tell them what is now biblical. And that's especially effective when people are are peasants, uh, for example, and they, they can't read, they're not taught to think, um, much of like what we saw in the, the medieval times. The problem with, with Hugh is that his position uh, didn't completely comport with the actual practice of the church. Uh, the church held that penance was a sacrament, um, but he didn't since it couldn't meet all four of his elements. And so there's also a disconnect between theological development and reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next person that you come to is then Peter Lombard, who he died in 1164. His, his magnum opus, I believe if I remember correctly, is Sentences. Um, that was his, his. I want to think you're right. His big work. Uh, he sought to improve on Hugh's points, and he did that by avoiding the insistence that a sacrament had to have a physical element. He said that it was, and here's a quote: "A sign of the grace of God and a form of invisible grace, so that it bears its image and exists as its cause." Um, and so, as a result, he's able to then argue that there were seven sacraments, um, which is similar to what the Roman Catholic Church is yeah, today. Yeah, how convenient.
1: Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, so those were some of the key uh, players in this development. Uh, baptism then in church history, um, how did that develop? Well, in the patristic period, the church fathers, that extended from 180 to 450 A.D. Um, there are scattered references, but actually not a lot of development or discussion. For some, they saw the baptism uh, as bringing regeneration, Others saw it as a remission of sins. Um, as time moved forward, infant baptism then became commonplace because you're now regenerate or your sins are forgiven. And so we've got to take care of that. So the idea was that baptism removes the original sin of the baby. That's a massive thing that still is with us today. Um, And then in the Middle Ages, by the 7th century, baptism became the key and foundational sacrament. It was the entranceway, if you will, into the church. Baptism was viewed as a means of grace. Therefore, it was impossible for anyone to become a member of the church without baptism. However, in the ninth century, the four folks became the Eucharist as a, a key sacra- uh, sacrament. So, again, we're trying to show you that within even the history of the church, things ebbed and flowed and came into prominence. Um, baptism now became the New Testament expression of circumcision. So, by the ninth century, now baptism is the New Testament expression of circumcision in the Old Testament. And I think that little tidbit is a bit enlightening for every protestant who thinks that is exactly what baptism is about it's like okay you understand that was developed by a good catholic theologian um who was arguing about sacramental theology that that didn't arise out of the bible
0: yeah yeah then we come to the reformation and so let us let us quote our friend luther here he says baptism is called in the greek language baptismos in Latin, merzio, which means to plunge something entirely into the water so that the water closes over it. And although in many places it is the custom no longer to thrust and plunge children into the font of baptism, but only to pour the baptismal water upon them out of the font, nevertheless, the former is what should be done, and it would be right. Um, that the <laughs> You remember those videos? or Those orthodox priests are just... Oh yeah. Smash and and the are doing into triune sort of
1: swoosh, swoosh <laughs> three times. And it's kids so screaming. Funny, yeah. um, <laughs> you ever seen the one where the, the baby slips out of the hands? No, no. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's like, whoa, you want a better grip on that kid.
0: And then you just watch the horrified parents. Yes. It's, it's actually pretty funny. Um He goes on, he says that the child uh, or whoever is baptized should be sunk entirely into the water and then drawn out again. This usage is also demanded by the significance of baptism, for baptism signifies that the old man and the sinful birth of flesh and blood are to be wholly drowned by the grace of God, as we shall hear. We should therefore do justice to its meaning and make baptism a true and complete sign of the thing it signifies.
1: Now, that's funny because that quote shows that he believed in immersion. Right. But you won't see that in the Lutheran church. Uh-uh. No. Nope. Anyhow.
0: It's true. Um, Zwingli, uh, early on, he believed in believer's baptism, and he was confronted about that by a prominent Anabaptist named Hubmeier uh, in 1523. By late 1524, Zwingli, uh, he issued a series of writings in which he refuted his earlier doubts about infant baptism. Um and and unlike Luther, uh, however, baptism did not confer saving faith to the infant. Uh, instead, he understood that it was bringing the child into a covenantal relationship within a Christian home.
1: So more like a reformed today. Yeah.
0: Um, <clears throat> and then Calvin, uh, he viewed baptism as denoting the, here's a quote, cleansing of our sins, which we obtain from Christ's blood. Uh, in addition, it also denotes, he says, the mortification of our flesh, which rests upon participation in his death. And then finally, baptism, as he says, is a symbol for bearing witness to our religion before men. And that comes from his famous institutes. Uh, he also saw that baptism was the New Testament expression of covenantal communion and relationship as uh, circumcision was in the Old Testament. It didn't save, but it did bring the child into that covenantal relationship.
1: Sure. All right, so Eucharist or Lord's Supper, well, again, in the patristic period, it shows very little discussion or development. Most of the church fathers of that period saw that there was a real presence of some sort in the wine or bread, though it was never really defined. However, once again, the Middle Ages, here's a couple of fun names. Uh, Radbertus, I'm going to name I'm going to argue that one of my grandsons should be called that, Radbertus. Uh, he argued in seven, he lived from 790 to 860. Uh, he argued that the real presence of Christ was in the Eucharist. The Eucharist was literally the flesh born of Mary and crucified on the cross. So that's a major advancement. Uh, then a guy named Ratramus, I guess, Rat Ramus. um, who opposed Radbertus, Radbertus. <laughs> how did I get all these R words, uh, took a more spiritual approach to the Eucharist. He held that the elements were mystic symbols of remembrance. He might, therefore, be regarded as a symbolist, seeing the Eucharist as a sacrificial meal, the efficacy of which depends on the intensity in which the recipient and uh, realizes the redeeming passion of Christ. So that's important that for him, then, your fitness to receive these sacraments factored in. If it, you you could take it rightly or wrongly, but it's under a guy named Aristotle. Under the influence of uh, Aristotle, that the Eucharist was really developed most fully by theologians of that period. Uh, you cannot downplay the effect of uh, Aristotle, uh, and they're thinking he, he was just a brilliant theolog. Uh, I mean, philosopher, and people just believed that yeah. uh, Aristotle was a pagan, though he was brilliant. Uh, but he affected the way people thought and understood things around them. But that does not make him capable of defining theology. We see the influence of Greek philosophy in sacramentalism and in eschatology, and we're going to try to point that out. Yeah, as, that's a
0: good That's a good point.
1: It, it's huge. Yeah. Every time, by the way, every person who ever argues that it's somehow demeaning to Christ to reign on a physical, literal throne on earth not today, I mean, at some point in the future they're, they're actually talking pure Platonic thought there, um, and they don't even understand it. doesn't matter what that, it's what the scriptures say. So, the key theologian of this day was Aquinas, and he drank deeply from the well of uh, Aristotle. So, he developed the idea of transubstantiation. Uh, this doctrine is founded on the Aristotelian distinction between substance an accident. This is fun stuff. Um, This is something people get confused about, so here is a very simple explanation that may help. The substance of something is the essential nature, and the accidents are its outward appearances, like color, shape, or smell. So transubstantiation holds that the accident's of the bread and the wine remain unchanged at the moment of consecration, while the substances of the bread and wine change to the body and blood of Christ. That's why it tastes like right. bread and wine, but its real essence has changed. Um, Note that this is pure philosophy, though, at its best, and it can be very intriguing and inviting to consider, but it's void, void, I tell you, of scriptural data to support it. This view was defined and affirmed then by the Fourth Lateran
0: Lateran Council Uh, in
1: 1215.
0: Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. So like your essential properties versus your accidental properties. Right. So like... What makes Matt Henry, Matt Henry, that's your essential property. But like your beard, right? that's an accidental property. That doesn't, whether you have a beard or not, that doesn't change the essence of what you are or who you are. So same thing with the, the, the bread or yep. the wine. Um, yeah, that, that ph- philosophical influence is huge. Um, then you get to the Reformation. Like many doctrines related to salvation in the church, uh, the sacraments were reconsidered in light of Scripture. Uh, that happens a lot. Um, <laughs> the the result was that the only sacraments supported in Scripture were were baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, but the reformers couldn't agree with regard to the Lord's Supper and how it functioned. So uh, Luther, for example, he, he held to something called consubstantiation. Um, another way you'll hear it phrased is a real presence of Christ, and it you'll you'll hear it phrased as uh, Christ is in with and under the elements.
1: Yeah, he's trying to step away from transubstantiation, but it sure sounds like it.
0: Yeah, um, yeah very close. Uh, then you had Zwingli and the Anabaptists, and they held to a memorial view. Um, so celebration of the Lord's Supper is a commemoration or remembrance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So do this in remembrance of right. him. Um Then you had Calvin, who held to a spiritual presence, which is a mediating view between Luther and Zwingli. Um, And so if you talk to someone who holds this position today, um, spiritual presence is the idea that when you're doing Lord's Supper, you're actually transported up into the throne room or crisis, sitting Mm -hmm. at the right hand of the Father. And in a a spiritual presence kind of way, you're there with him, though Mm -hmm. you're still
1: here on earth. And in that, there's a a certain grace conferred.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the same is said about baptism. Uh, Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, they all maintain the importance of infant baptism. Uh, the Anabaptists rejected infant baptism in favor of believers' baptism. Uh, we might add here that the church at this time in history killed more Anabaptists over their view of baptism than all of the Roman Empire's persecution of the church uh, in those early days. And that's that's a thing to just get your head around. Yeah, um,
1: because a lot we love of people to don't t- know that. Yeah, yeah, we love to talk about those early years and the, the horrors of what happened, but. There were many s- sincere believers literally being killed by their brothers in Christ um, because they held to believer baptism only. Yeah. And they were willing to go to the grave. They went back off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it just shows you how, how wimpy the American church is. I mean, we're, we're, we are willing to fold on anything. Yeah,
0: we just agree to disagree, right? As yep. long as it's yeah, like, it's, people, it's, you know, it, people died for that doctrine. <laughs> we
1: just love Jesus. Hence, a private conversation we had off mic.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, the differences in the Reformation uh, shows here how theology previously learned can easily color one's ongoing study of the Bible. And we need to grasp that there were massive pressures and political and sociological shifts that were occurring in this time uh, as well that affected how deeply something was being studied.
1: All right. So that's, that's enough. I think. Uh, next time, we're going to uh, dive a bit deeper into this section by considering the, then the actual rite of baptism. That's a huge sub- subject. It divides the church, and it shouldn't be taken lightly, especially in light of the countless deaths that have occurred over it. So we hope you will t- tune in for that one as well. However, we do hope in some way we were it was helpful for you to understand how this doctrine of sacraments developed and why, as we said, next up is baptism. Well, until then, make certain to tune in, join this conversation, and if you have any questions on the subject of sacraments or ordinances, drop us a note. We say that. We know you won't, but we would be (laughs) thrilled if you would. Um, And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review on iTunes, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and tell a friend.